4: Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of August 4th, 2014. On this week's show, we'll talk about Paul George's gruesome leg injury during a USA basketball scrimmage, and whether this is the end of top NBA players competing in the World Championships and the Olympics. Our Slate colleague, Emily Bazelon, will then join us to assess the appalling reports about rapes at the Air Force Academy and the seemingly unrelenting crisis of sexual assault on campus— and in college sports in particular. We'll also be joined by Baseball Prospectus Editor-in-Chief Sam Miller to discuss last week's flurry of deadline moves, what the John Lester and David Price trades reveal about contemporary deal-making. And in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll look at the start of the NFL preseason and the debut of the 33-yard extra point. Chicken. Stephen, Yay. hold your fire. Joining me in Washington, D.C., it is Stefan Fatsis. The author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, the Friday sports correspondent, Friend Pierre's All Things Considered. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. And with us from New York is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's Daily Podcast, The Gist. With, with Mike, Mike Pesca. <clears throat> <laughs> Hello, Mike. Will you be my jingleer? Will you be my jingleer? Does that answer your question? I'll be your Yoko Ono. Hey, Stefan, raise your mic up a little bit, buddy. Raise it up. <laughs> we should. You should have had more sound effects.
0: Kind of did that on its own. Aside from the bonus segment, could we do a Hall of Fame game takeaways? Takeaway one: Eli Manning, precision passing.
4: I'm glad <laughs> we're not doing that. Yeah, let's save that for later. Uh, we have a live show to announce o- October eighth at Galapagos Art Space in Wait, Brooklyn. hold on. I'm writing this down. <laughs> when is you, that?
0: What day of the week? <laughs> October eighth. I think it's a oh Wednesday. My God.
4: You've been there before, right, Mike? You've done a show there before. No, I read the Vonnegut book. That's close as I got to that. Oh, I really? really want to go to the Galapagos. You'll have a chance to go the to islands. the Brooklyn version. It's part of New York Super Week. It's an extension of Comic-Con. So uh, perhaps Mike Peska will be dressed up as his favorite Avenger, um, maybe as Howard the Duck. Slate.com. Hawkeye. Hawkeye. Don't interrupt me in the middle of a URL, man. Sorry, man. That's serious business. Slate.com slash hangup super week. It's a $20 ticket, 30% off for Slate plus members. Uh, October 8th, Galapagos, Brooklyn. Slate.com slash up super week. Uh, hopefully, none of us will get our foot caught in any sort of stage implement. Did you know, Stefan, that a stanchion is something like a post that you use to keep cows <laughs> upright during milking? I feel like that's what's getting lost during this Paul George story. So you much like, is getting lost. You like, uh, you know, usage words, one
3: or usage two?
4: That is that's probably usage two. But you like it when when we note the oh meanings of words. These, go, are, this, going these things are now. important to you. All right, look that up. While I note that on Friday night during a pre World Championships USA Basketball scrimmage in Las Vegas, the Indiana Pacers Paul George flew through the air to contest a shot by James Harden. He crashed into the support underneath the basket, aka the stanchion, aka the cow milking device. George's foot got caught. His right leg snapped. He broke his tibia and fibula. It was similar to what happened to Kevin Ware's leg in the 2013 NCAA tournament. Uh, I managed to avoid seeing the video until Sunday night, at which time I watched it, at which time I made the following sound. Oh, Uh, what sound did you make, Mike?
0: Oh, I made the sound of don't let me watch that. I did not see the actual break. I've, I've seen a few of these breaks, and nothing—it They it doesn't help me at all. So I know not to watch.
4: Stefan? I watched. Ugh. Yeah. So the reactions of the players on the court were similar. ESPN's Mark Jones reported that he saw Kyrie Irving sobbing in his father's arms I after the my, injury. I think
3: my breath kind of caught. I had one of those— <clears throat>
4: <clears throat> mm-hmm. It was really bad. It was really bad, Mike. I think you might have made the wise the wise decision. But okay, the micro angle here is that the stanchion underneath the basket looked a lot closer than it does in NBA arenas. Though ESPN's Ramona Shelburne reported that it measured three feet eleven inches, just one inch below the NBA minimum. But you got to get those stanchions further back. Slightly less micro angle is that twenty four year old Paul George, despite his reportedly successful surgery, I should note the one millionth consecutive successful surgery in sports history, will certainly miss the upcoming NBA season, which means the Pacers are basically screwed. The macro angle of them all is this could potentially lead teams and players to be more skittish about international competition. Uh, Pacers president Larry Bird and Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, have already said this could have happened anywhere. It could have happened any time. Silver said he doesn't anticipate a major shift in participation in international competitions. But right after George went down, Adrian Wojnarski of Yahoo, very connected, he tweeted, owners and GMs United tonight, Paul George injury could be tipping point for stars use in international play.
3: Tipping point, also a cow term.
4: (laughs) Very much so. (laughs) Uh, Stefan, what do you think is going to happen because of this Paul George injury? I
3: don't think a lot will happen. I don't think the NBA is suddenly going to pull out of the World Cup or pull out of the Olympics entirely. Uh, those would be foolish moves. I think that the owners will. Moves. The owners will make some attempts to gain better control over whether players, over how and whether players participate in the World Cup or the Olympics or other uh, extracurricular activities. Um, but I don't see this leading to a some sort of uprising, revolt, dropping out of. FIBA, the International Basketball Association.
4: So 1992 NBA players go to the Olympics. There's a novelty there because they previously hadn't been allowed and it's this huge worldwide event and it was a huge event for the players. It was an honor to be selected for the Dream Team. It was an uh, you know dishonor not to be selected as Isaiah Thomas could tell you. And then gradually it just becomes l- more and more of a chore. It's seen as being more onerous. The Olympics are not kind of the fun lark that they were in the beginning. And then the U.S. loses in 2002 at the World Championships. They finish sixth. They don't win the 2004 Olympics. They don't win in the 2006 World Championships. And then again, in 2008, um, LeBron, Durant, Carmelo, they win the gold, redeem team, and it sort of becomes this important special thing for American players again. Are we getting, is this going to be the start of another kind of down cycle in the U.S. Olympic uh, World Championships basketball sign curve, Mike?
0: No, I don't think so. And I uh, generally subscribe to what uh, Stefan was saying there. Onerous is an interesting name because it's, uh, or word, because it would be the owners who would put a kibosh on that. I think that what was animating the uh, FIBA as becoming a legitimate thing that every NBA player wants to do is a few things and it usually gets blamed on we can never go back to that sorry state when we, you know, either want a bronze, pick your pick your Nadir, right? You just did. I think that the players love the camaraderie. These days, the NBA, I mean Of all sports where there's some sort of ethic to hate your enemy that's least true in the NBA I mean this is a reality they I guess they're they don't subscribe to the fiction what I would call the fiction Of that we're enemies. I mean, they really do see themselves as together, and this is a great chance for star players to do a few things, like play with each other, like bond with each other, like figure out how free agency is going to go. (laughs) So I think the players like it a lot, and I think the fans like it a lot. And the way I look at it is, did you like the World Cup? Did you like that soccer
3: tournament? I did. I like that soccer tournament too. Yeah, so this is like a basketball
0: version of that. And if we we let one injury that could have happened anywhere derail that, And we'll never get to, even if we're, okay, we will never get to uh, basketball competing with soccer worldwide, but it's,
3: you know, has a chance to get a fraction of that. And I think it's worth it. Yeah. And as the competition gets more balanced in basketball, which it has, I was at the 2000, the the Olympics in Athens in 2004, US got its butt kicked. As the competition gets more balanced, it becomes more interesting. And as it becomes more interesting, the best players in the world want to compete. I mean, players like Dirk Nowitzki and Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili have served their national teams for you know 15 years each, some of them, um, with great honor and great desire and great determination. I mean, I think when, when you know, if you ask Ginobili how great winning the gold medal was, I think he put that right up there with winning the NBA championships.
4: But it's obviously a different calculus for players who aren't from the U.S., where part of the point of these international competitions is to prove – That their Mm -hmm. countries have attained this level where in the United States, as Mike mentioned, the thing that you're proving basically is that you're still the best or there's this, you know, occasional, you know, once or twice a generation disgrace. And then you have to get back to the heights that you're at. It's a different kind of goal. Sure,
3: it is a different kind of goal. Except that as the rest of the world continues to improve, and as these teams get deeper and have an ability to compete with the United States more regularly, the competitions are only going to get more interesting as we move forward. And if you if you imagine, look, LeBron's not going to play this year. LeBron did that, and I think for a lot of NBA players, there's this feeling of I'm going to do that at the beginning of my career. One Olympics, two Olympics, one world championship, two world championships, and then let the earlier generation, let younger players be the ones representing and having that opportunity to put a gold medal around their neck, which is really cool. And I think the players like that. The players want to participate. And what gets lost in in the aftermath, the immediate aftermath of something like Paul George's injury is that players are making, their, making a decision. It's not as if FIBA is dragooning Paul George to try out for Mike Shishkovsky's basketball team. Um, this is a choice that these guys make because they want to play, just as World Cup players for Barcelona and Real Madrid and Bayern Munich and Manchester United want to represent their countries. You know which which injury was potentially more damaging to its sport, Paul George's or Neymar's in the World Cup? Would anyone is anyone in Brazil saying we shouldn't play? In the World Cup, because Neymar got hurt, is anyone even in Europe on European teams where players were injured during the tournament saying, we shouldn't participate? Those clubs have worked out agreements with FIFA. Maybe what needs to happen here is that FIBA and the NBA and other leagues around the world, for that matter, need to do a better job of negotiating the terms of participation of their players.
4: Well, the big loser here is obviously the Pacers. um, And this is the point that Mark Cuban has been making loudly for many years and and even louder this weekend, the idea that um, FIBA and the International Olympic Committee are the ones making a profit off of these players and that the teams um, in the NBA that are you know allowing their players to participate in these tournaments are not making anything, and neither are the players. You could argue that part of the endorsement money that the players get from Nike or whatever baked in with the idea that they're going to be in these international competitions, but they're not paid um, for playing in these games. So, Mike, where is Cuban uh, making sense and where maybe does he have it wrong, do you think?
0: I think he's displaying his objectivist roots. I mean, most of what we do in life is not for pay. Actually... Time-wise, maybe about half of it is, but so much of it isn't. So, I mean, this is sort of a leisure activity. This is something that they decide to do in their free time. In fact, this is almost like uh, for them charity work, right? They're expanding some the sport of basketball in a way that they are in the best positions
4: to do.
3: And they're getting, and they're getting a life experience that they will cherish.
4: But don't you think Cuban has a point that FIBA and the IOC have convinced? us and the players, that this is a life experience, when in fact, for them, it is a money-making experience? It absolutely is one-sided, yes. These sportocrat organizations
3: collect revenue and they do other insidious sportocrat things but no one has mentioned that they do distribute millions of dollars in revenue to national basketball federations and federations in other sports maybe not as much as they could or should maybe too much goes to line pockets of these minor sportocrats in small countries it does but even USA basketball takes money from FIBA. it's not as if they go uncompensated and there is some collective group group of FIBA executives that are depositing tens of millions of dollars into individual bank accounts. That's not it. The financial point of these tournaments is to distribute revenue to places that don't already generate billions of dollars from this sport. And who is Mark Cuban to complain on behalf of the players? If the
0: players aren't complaining and it is of their free will and accord, then who has a problem with it?
3: I think you're you're right, Mike. I mean, NBA owners shouldn't be the ones to say, to tell these guys what they can and can't it's do. It's
0: disingenuous. He's not complaining because he cares about the
4: players. He's complaining because he cares about the possibility of his asset getting hurt. Correct. And yeah. let's talk about just the similarities and differences in these international tournaments. I mean, it's not fair, Stefan, to compare the World Cup of Basketball to the World Cup of Soccer just because of tradition, popularity, and the amount of money that's getting generated is not... Comparable, Um, Perhaps a little bit more fair to compare to the World Baseball Classic, although I think the issue there is that that is a Major League Baseball-funded and sponsored event that's very transparently designed to try to increase the popularity of this league, of this sport, all around the world. Um, There was an agreement made in 2013 that the World Baseball Classic, quote-unquote, which basically means Major League Baseball, would pay players salaries, guys like Hanley Ramirez, who got hurt in the World Baseball Classic, um, you know, they would help defray the cost mm-hmm. there. So that is something that there's a precedent for and that FIBA could do. Um, but the issue in the World Baseball Classic as it is here, as it could potentially be here, is that American players didn't have any interest in playing in it, or a lot of them didn't. Mike Trout didn't play in it. A lot of the most popular guys, Buster Posey, mm-hmm. Bryce Harper, Derek Jeter, didn't play in it. And you could say that in basketball that it's sort of a tragedy of the commons, although, you know, without the word tragedy, it's that the U.S. doesn't need Paul George to play in this tournament to win the gold medal. They don't need LeBron James to play in it. But at a certain point when, if you say, oh, they don't need LeBron James, they don't need Kevin Durant, they don't need Paul George, at a certain point they will lose if enough of these guys are like, well, they don't need me, and the tournament will just decline in popularity. So there has to be some sort of equilibrium state Where enough guys are playing for it to be viable, but players don't feel like they absolutely have to or risk injury or whatever. But the
3: answer isn't what Mark Cuban wants it to be, which is that the NBA should control everything. I mean, he's pissed off that FIBA, like FIFA and like the IOC, reap all this profit on the backs of leagues and players. Fine. True. True. But what does the NBA controlling the profits have anything to do with players not getting injured, jeopardizing clubs, investments and performance during the NBA season? It's really just, yeah, I feel terrible about Paul George. If he's going to get hurt, though, at least let's make the money off of his participation in this tournament. And that, to me, is complete bullshit. And it also is so... America-centric. I mean, there is something called the EuroLeague, which is a rather successful group of teams based in Europe, pretty big league. It does and would continue to supply more players to any world tournament than the NBA would. Maybe not as high profile, but... In terms of aggregate numbers, more players, why shouldn't they run the world tournament and keep the revenue? Wouldn't the NBA be better as a basketball ambassador as opposed to a basketball superpower? You know, if it joined with all the other leagues in the world and organized better to run an international tournament, oh, wait, that's what they already do. That's what FIBA does. All the leagues do agree and join in with FIBA to run this tournament. Maybe what they need to do is to negotiate better terms or stricter terms or terms that are more... Palatable to the NBA and then the Euroleague.
0: I would also like to say that if the injury weren't something that looked so gruesome, we'd probably be having only thirty percent of this argument. Correct,
4: <laughs> but it was so gruesome. It was so so gruesome. All right, a quick word about our membership program, Slate Plus. You can sign up for five dollars a month at slate.com dot com slash hangup plus. Um, let's talk about the second season of Orange Is the New Black, the Slate Plus Limited Edition podcast series. Available exclusively for members, takes a deeper look at the show through the lens of economics, LGBT issues, and more. In the final episode, our TV critic Willa Paskin talks to Big Boo herself, Leah Delaria, about her character, how she was cast, and more. You can listen and get all of the rest of the Slate Plus membership goodies by signing up at Slate.com slash Hangup Plus. A report by Tom Roder of the Colorado Springs Gazette has revealed that athletes at the U.S. Air Force Academy, and now I'm quoting from Roder's story, flouted the sacred honor code by committing sexual assaults, taking drugs, cheating, and engaging in other misconduct at wild parties, while the service academy focused on winning bowl games and attracting money from alumni And private sources. Uh, The most disturbing allegation in the story is that in December 2011, during a party in the woods after the Air Force football team beat Colorado State, four or five young women drank from a bottle of rum that was laced with a date rape drug, and an unknown number of sexual assaults subsequently took place. As a result of that and other incidents, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations looked into 32 cadets. 17 eventually left the Air Force either after getting kicked out or leaving of their own volition. We are now joined uh, to talk about this by our Slate colleague, Emily Bazelon, who writes about jurisprudential matters and is featured each week on the Political Gab Fest. Hello, Emily.
5: Hey, it is such an honor to be here. I've become a big fan of this show as my sports addict children have started listening to it.
4: Well, unfortunately, Emily, uh, we are not going to be discussing a fun story this week. And doubly, unfortunately, you've had a lot of these types of stories to cover. Um, And this one is kind of at the intersection of the worst of military uh, sexual assault culture, sports sexual assault culture, higher education. So given your experience covering these sorts of cases, does this Air Force situation strike you as sadly typical, or is it particularly shocking somewhere in between?
5: both. I think it reflects the broader cultural problems that both the military and some college athletic programs, particularly football programs, have had with sexual assault. And I'm interested in hearing what you guys think about whether there's a kind of underlying misogyny going on here are exactly how we explain the, the way in which these cases frequently erupt in these settings. But I also think, I mean, these are pretty extreme allegations. I would like to think that this is not what is happening routinely at lots of schools across the country.
0: Well, I would posit that since there is a uh, rape problem on campus and since the universities have shown... Some unwillingness and some fecklessness and a lot of incompetence in dealing with the problem. You're not going to get a better set of actions when it comes to male athletes who are, you know, coddled more and uh, protected more than just regular male undergraduate students.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I also think it's a problem. I mean, you could argue that athletic programs, because they are really looking after these students and taking so much care and so much expense with them, would be particularly concerned that they behave well. And yet, obviously, we don't see that. We see a lot of license. There's so much aggression that goes into playing sports. I mean, competition has this intense aggression to it, and we expect people to kind of turn that off as soon as they walk off the field. And I'm not trying to say that, you know, football players shouldn't hit each other, et cetera, that's silly, but I do wonder if there's something unrealistic here, and if we see some of the channeling of that, like, testosterone-laden energy, if some of that explains these, this propensity to sexual assaults.
4: I would argue that it's not so much that, and it's more the coddling aspect. It's the idea that you can get away with doing things that other students or other just human beings could not get away with because you have this exalted status in life or on campus. I think that athletes are aware that the things that they do on the field um, in terms of aggressive play are not that you don't do that sort of stuff off the field but i think there is the idea that off field behavior of a different sort whether it's being you know sexually aggressive whether it's you know getting away with things in the classroom feeling like professors are going to give you an a if you don't show up in class these are things that you know start in high school and they they go on in college and it seems like to get back to the specifics of the air force case it does seem like there was permissiveness in terms of the kinds of recruits that were let into the school. That football players were, you know, allowed to be of a slightly lesser caliber based on the Air Force's internal standards. Um, and so that's something that you kind of see across, you know, the spectrum of all sorts of different schools. And then you obviously have, you know, the issues of military and sexual assault. There was a huge furor in two thousand three with sexual assaults at the Air Force Academy and you would have liked to think that changes would have been made and it seems like here there really weren't.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. I also think it's important that when you read about these individual cases, you often hear about victims being shut down Either, you know, because they don't feel like the cops believe them or they're terrified of how angry the whole campus is going to get with them if they come out and denounce a guy or sometimes the athletic programs come in and pay them off um, or the players pay them off if they threaten to bring lawsuits. And I think that, unfortunately, is really a part of all of this. There's a way in which women and drinking and drugs and maybe cheating, too, are like perks sometimes of being a really successful college athlete. And, you know, when you when you say it that way, it seems reprehensible, and yet it's clearly a thread here.
3: Yeah, you talk about the sort of cultural permissiveness that allows athletes to get away with stuff, but it's also the, the institution itself. It's how universities... Educate or don't educate athletes about sexual assault, about violence off the field, about proper behavior. Um, and it's also the how the messages are transmitted when something happens to both athletes and victims. There was a case at the University of Missouri last spring in which a football player named Doriel Green Beckham Broken to push the door down in an apartment, shoved a woman down the stairs, forcibly dragged his girlfriend out of the, out of an apartment, and then, in a series of text messages afterward, uh, one of them from his girlfriend to another woman, the woman who was pushed down the stairs, I think she says, the coaches talked to me and explained to me how serious this is. And there's no time to waste at this point, referring to the fact that if green Beckham got kicked out of Missouri, he might not be able to, he, he would be jeopardizing his draft status for the NFL. So the culture is protect the athlete and Emily, the broader question of how these cases are adjudicated, I think bears discussing, too. Does it give more benefit of the doubt to the player, the perpetrator of a possible sexual assault than a criminal investigation would?
5: Well, so there's two parallel tracks here, um, and I think this gets confused a lot. If there's a sexual assault, you can always, and you think you're a victim, you can always go to the police and report it. At colleges and universities, there is a parallel track where the schools have an obligation to independently investigate, apart from what the police do under the federal law, Title IX, which um, is supposed to protect broadly against sex discrimination. In the last few years, the Department of Education has made it clear to schools, like, you really need to take this responsibility seriously. You need to have judicatory processes, like a disciplinary committee set up, and and you need to be using, actually, a a standard of evidence, preponderance of the evidence that's more um, conducive to victims, right? So instead of beyond a reasonable doubt, you're going to, preponderance is really just, like, 51%. And so there's been a kind of pushback. Back on the part of men's rights advocates who think that men are being unfairly found guilty based on this standard. And arguably, because of that standard, the system in colleges is more protective of victims than the criminal justice system. I think we don't really know whether that's true. There's a total, almost complete lack of data about how these adjudicatory systems are playing out, which I find really frustrating because there are lots of anecdotal claims on all sides and it's hard to know exactly, you know, how many claims are being brought, how many people are being found responsible, that's the word that gets used instead of guilty, and what the punishments are. But there is one striking piece of data from a national survey that Senator Claire McCaskill, um, had the schools fill out. And that is that one-fifth of schools turn over the responsibility for investigating reports of sexual assault to athletic departments if there's an athlete involved. And that just seems like such an obvious glaring error in all of this.
0: You know, there's that quote about when it's in people's self-interest to do nothing, they'll so often do nothing. And I kind of think that's what's going on in the colleges. I mean, you read these stories about rapes that uh, don't even have anything to do with athletics. Although in the Hobart one, which was a New York Times uh, cover story, it actually was a football player. But the panel who heard the rape charges included an assistant professor, uh, someone in the HR department, and the woman who ran the bookstore, because she showed she showed an interest in that. I don't even know how useful it is to debate if it is true that uh, athletes are more prone to sexual assaults. Because I think that there are plenty of uh, campuses without a football team or plenty of fraternities where this goes on, where there's many sexual assaults. If you look at the recent case of the Ohio State band, what was going on was uh, sexual harassment of the uh, female members. It just seems rampant. You know, one of my theories is that the reason that we think that it's so prevalent among athletes is that there's The national media covers all of these teams, but they don't cover anyone else on campus. So if athletes are guilty of sexual assaults at the exact same rates as any other group of students, one group, the athletes, will make national news, and the other groups might not even make campus news.
5: I mean, I think that's a totally fair point. I guess I would say that... um... It is striking when you look back over the years, and Jessica Luthor has done this at Power Forward, of the list of infractions that have gotten media coverage and the lack of consequences for the athletes. So I think that's one reason there's, like, particular outrage about, you know, football players and athletes in general. And the other thing in my sort of wishful thinking moment is that, go back to the idea that these athletes have this special role on campus, they get lots of resources devoted to them. Could the schools appeal to them to be role models and leaders in this? I mean, maybe I'm just being fanciful here, but these are guys, they have sisters, they have moms. Some of them care about how women are treated. And is there a way in which their you know, their closeness as a team unit could actually like be used in favor of real reform here?
4: So I think um mike is totally right about um making sure that we note that this is not just a football problem not just a sports problem and exactly correct about these getting more media attention but let's also remember the special hell that women who do get sexually assaulted by star athletes have to go through imagine the university panel say you do have the three faculty members you may have students then just imagine like 5 million Sports fans sitting on the opposite side, whose only interest is that the star player plays, you know, in the next game. Like, there's an LSU player now who's def- definitely suspended. This wasn't a sexual assault, but he's accused of punching a woman in the face. And at all on the message board, it's all like, "Will Jalen Mills play against Wisconsin?" It's not like, "What happened to the woman whose face got punched?" And with Jameis Winston, it's all about is Jameis Winston gonna play? What's going on with Jameis Winston? And how
5: quickly can we get him his husband trophy?
4: <laughs> exactly. I mean the Lizzie Seaberg case at Notre Dame, that, you know, depending on how you view that, that could show the horrible potential consequences of what happens when these when the football player is given every benefit of the doubt and the woman who's sexually assaulted is not. So let's just let's just stipulate that.
5: Yeah, I mean I think that's a completely important point here and in the, you know, there's been some pushing back against the attention to sexual assault on campuses a month or two ago. George Will wrote a column saying that being a victim of sexual assault had become a coveted status on campus and you know, I just, what the actual victims of, you know, or at least the people who've made allegations against players like Jameis Winston, they do not feel like they have any kind of coveted status. They feel totally hounded and often these women end up leaving school. I mean, from there, whatever you think about the difficulties of adjudicating these cases, which are very real, these are hard facts to nail down, they often can ruin the lives of the women who bring the accusations and leave men relatively untouched. And I think that's especially true if you're an athlete. And that does feel very hard to take.
3: And I think what we need to acknowledge is that athletes do have this different sort of role on campus. They are much more, they're public figures in many cases. Um, They get special treatment academically, tuition, board, everything. So the question becomes, is there a higher standard that needs to be applied? And not just in terms of adjudicating a legal matter, but in terms of the contract that athletes enter into when they arrive on campus. Is it different in some ways? Would athletic departments be better served if it was much more explicit about the expected behaviors and that they stuck to standards of behavior?
4: And let's also just... Be clear that, you know, Green Beckham of Missouri, he was kicked off the team. He's now at Oklahoma. And at Air Force Academy, a lot of athletes were punished, were kicked out of school. And criminally prosecuted. Um, So, Emily, is there maybe that? I hope that there's a a positive answer here to the extent that there can be one. Are there examples that you've seen of schools, of athletic departments that have handled cases well, either a specific instance or um, a specific university?
5: I'm sure there are and I can't think of a specific one right now because I tend to focus on the problems but sure. You know, there are definitely schools that are trying to be proactive about this and, you know, do education beforehand that serves a prevention role. I mean, those are the schools we honestly hear less about. The Obama administration highlighted in particular the University of New Hampshire, not to do with its athletic department, but generally its approach to trying to prevent sexual assault on campus. So, you know, they're getting a lot of attention right now. And I think what we're seeing is more... more action in schools generally. I mean, you were saying earlier that if you can do nothing, you do nothing. I think it's becoming more costly to do nothing. And that is probably the most important driver of seeing lots of different approaches. And what we want is a kind of laboratory of ideas where different schools try different things and we see what works.
4: Well, thank you, Emily. Um, And hopefully we will Have you on in happier times next time.
5: I will look forward to that, although I do often get called in on grim stories. But a happier one, yes, please.
0: You need to redefine your expertise to include free throw shooting.
5: Tell me about it. I know, not to mention the fact that my children would be so excited if I knew anything about free throw shooting. They would just be thrilled.
4: We are now joined by the brand new editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus, Sam Miller. In addition to his writing for BP, Sam is the co-host of the outstanding daily podcast, Effectively Wild, along with the former Prospectus editor-in-chief, Ben Lindbergh, who is now writing for Grantland. You can find that podcast on Baseball Prospectus and in iTunes. Hey, Sam, how's it going? Good, Josh. How are you? I'm doing well. You guys have had a lot to talk about, and we have a lot to talk about today. It was a very active trade deadline. Um, and there are a lot of interesting specifics, you know, what the Tigers gave up to get David Price, the um, A's Red Sox, John Lester, Yonis um, Cespetis deal. But the bigger picture here is that, and you guys have talked about this, not a lot of prospects going back and forth. The kind of terms of these trades are not um, what we might have expected at deadlines past. So what is going on in baseball where teams don't want prospects Anymore, And you have the A's and Red Sox just trading, like, two pretty well-established veteran players.
2: Well, I think there's a few things going on. There was, about 10 years ago, there was this idea that took hold of the competitive window. And I think Jonah Carey originally uh, coined the term. And the idea of the competitive window is if you're not going to win, you know, today, then you should look to tomorrow. And if you're not going to win till tomorrow, or if you're not going to win tomorrow, you should, you know, find the date in the far-off future when you are going to win and you should sort of pool all your resources to that. And and that makes sense. There was a lot of research that found that adding a win or adding even 10 wins to a bad team does nothing to change your revenue. And so you're essentially spending money on uh, wins that that don't ultimately count. Fans don't really care whether you win 74 instead of 64. And it hurts you in some other ways, like, you know, costs you a higher draft pick and um, you know, costs you the opportunity to cash in some of your better players for prospects.
3: And cost and so you idea, more money, period, in terms of And cost you more money.
2: Exactly, right. Although, strangely, it's weird because the, the more I talk to teams, the more it seems that they are operating on one-year budgets for the most part. They don't just take that money and save it and spend it three years later. Like, the GMs are really fighting for every dollar they can get right now from their owners because they know that their owners might decide to get cheap in three years anyway. So, there's a way that you ought to be able to just take that money and invest it in gold or something like that, and then three years from now I have all that money, and that doesn't really happen. But otherwise, yeah, you're right. It costs you money, it costs you all sorts of things. And so this idea was that you basically should just funnel everything into that date in the future when you think you're going to be good. And that idea has sort of fallen away. And one of the reasons I think is that the second wild card has really opened up a lot more chances to compete. We're seeing a lot more teams that were projected to be fourth-place teams playing meaningful games in September. So really, you enter in a season now with maybe two or three teams that could say, there's no chance for us this year. Even the teams that aren't very good, things can break, right? They can become you know, the Baltimore Orioles or whatever. So I think that's one big thing. And when you start looking at what prospects do for you, they're high upside, but they also have a lot of risk. And even when they come together for you, even when they turn into superstars, they don't do it on your timeline. You can't say, oh, well, these guys are all going to hit their peaks the same week, and then we're going to be dynamite that week. One guy will take four years, like Josh Donaldson, and another guy might have two really good years at the beginning of his career and then get hurt. And so they don't all end up timing with each other perfectly. So I think... And this is some speculation and some after-the-fact explanation, but I think when you're looking at teams, particularly like the Rays and the Red Sox, that don't see themselves as you know, rebuilding in a five-year plan, they think, well, there's way too much risk involved in getting even double and triple-A talent Uh, And so we just want the guys who are going to be able to step in right now, and we know more or less what they're going to do, while still giving us some cost certainty.
3: Sam, this doesn't really apply at the margins, though. When it comes to the Yankees and the Dodgers and the perpetually high-revenue teams— They don't have those kinds of concerns. And similarly, at the bottom, Houston is in one of those long rebuilding phases um, where they are sort of banking on 2017 or 2018 for success. So we're really talking about that vast middle in baseball, and it is a much vaster middle than it was 20 years ago, where you do legitimately have the ability – with if you go for it and not not worry so much about developing your farm system that you do have a chance to make the playoffs
2: yeah you do i i think that um even with the dodgers and the yankees by the way i mean they they also want to have good farm systems it's just harder for them to incorporate those guys but i mean the dodgers have talked a lot about how they have invested heavily in their international scouting and their international uh, signings and so prospects over the last 10 years have just become such a A sexy part of the game. uh, I mean, you almost get the feeling a lot of times that teams would rather have a good farm system than a pretty good major league system, or you did get that impression, and you got that impression from fans, too. It was like the the Baseball America organizational rankings were almost as important to a lot of fans as the standings. I just think that that has somewhat faded away as teams have just sort of recalibrated their risk. I think also we're overstating it to some degree. The fact is that this year, the, the main sellers were the Rays and the Red Sox, And those are not usually the teams that are going to be selling. Normally you're talking about, you know, the Rockies or the, you know, Diamondbacks or whatever, teams like that who, you know, are still probably operating on the idea that they need to keep their farm system going and they can't overspend on anything. But the Rays and the Red Sox are different. They want to be championship contenders on opening day next year.
0: I think there's a couple of things going on. I think maybe a few years ago, the idea that you were talking about, it was seen that you could do it with precision. You know, you could do it with a water dropper. And now maybe a GM should look at balancing his team in an era of fat and an era of lean, like water in a pan. There's only so much you could do to get it to slosh one way or another. Let's take the A's, right? So they have a good deal with Cespedes. He's signed for relatively small amount of money next year, but they trade him. They trade him for this year and next, and I think they hurt themselves in the outfield because even though you can make the case that that the tandems, that the platoons that are going to replace him like a Gomes fold platoon, I guess you could... You know, we look at it like, well, Billy Bean's a genius, so we'll um, do a little 20% inflation on how good those guys are going to be. And, you know, if they match up lefty-righty correctly, they won't be much worse than Cespedes, which means they're worse than Cespedes. Like, they'll, they'll need a bat in the outfield or somewhere in the lineup, and they're not going to get it from him. And so I think that what's going on is that teams correctly are saying, let's generally do what we can to win now, and then let's generally uh, define it as a... Uh, a year of lean. Like, let's The Red Sox are getting totally lauded for their offseason moves. Although, as you pointed out in your podcast recently, the, the position the Red Sox are in is supposed to be so wonderful because they have only maybe Dustin Pedroia signed long-term and then they have, I think, a club option on Clay Buckholt for like 37 cents. So they're in this great position because they don't have anyone signed. But as you pointed out, the less sophisticated way to look at that is to say they don't have any players. So, like, I don't know. We tend to over- value things like uh, prospects and not having payroll. as Our cap space in the NBA. cap space, as opposed to having a really good player like Cespedes, and if this year is the A's window, next year is going to be the A's window, too. Have good players now, I say.
2: Yeah, I, I think that the water dropper analogy is is perfect. I mean, I once saw a, uh, a report that a front office guy had filed for his team. It was like this 60-page report about how winning teams are built, and like the cycle of winning and how you want to have this rhythm of winning, and the idea was that you want to have basically one player develop every year, so that that you're replenishing and and then have one free agent leave every year, and it creates this awesome cycle. And the model for this was the Braves for 15 years, which is great except that's like impossible to to plan on. Like, right? How do you how do you even begin to have one guy a year instead of? you know two guys one year and then four without any and and then maybe you sign one guy
0: to a three year deal and then one guy to a five year deal and then one guy gets hurt in the middle of his the deal there's like they don't take
2: into account uncertainty at all no and they also that idea that which i think i don't think teams pay as much attention to it as as you know we used to but the idea of the the competitive cycle is also Barely insane. I mean, there are. Okay, so this is one of my favorite things about baseball. If you take a team and you know exactly their true talent level, you know if you play a million games, you know exactly how many wins they're going to get. Just statistical fluctuation alone will basically account for an eight game swing in either direction every year. So. If you know that they're an 83-win team, well, they could win 93 this year, and they could win 75 this year. And that's the likely outcomes. I mean, it could be a much bigger swing, and then, of course, you don't actually know their true talent level. So just you add in the uncertainty about that. So basically, we're looking at a team that wins 73 games and saying, oh, well, they can't possibly win next year. They better just tear it down and rebuild, and in five years, maybe they'll be good because they have Baseball America's number two farm system as, as somewhere along the line. But the 73-win team could very easily be the good team in disguise. The Red Sox, when the Red Sox won 69 games in 2012. They won the World Series last year. Last year, their own internal projections had them winning 85 games. So they did not see the World Series coming. And probably the internal projections this year had them winning about 85 games. I don't know that, but my guess is that it did. A huge part of what we think is actual baseball intelligence it is not. It's just like the fluctuation of a season that can't capture everything, even in 162 games.
4: So, Sam, the A's definitely do see the World Series coming or really, really want the World Series to come this year. They have by far and away the best run differential in baseball. And you mentioned the extra wild card. It seems like not only has this small rule change made it so that more teams are potential playoff teams, and maybe that Drives the trade market in certain ways. But it certainly seems, and I'm interested if you agree, that it's driving Billy Bean's thinking because they have this amazing record and yet they're only a little bit ahead of the Angels. And if they don't finish in first place, then they get the like, your shit really doesn't work in the one game playoff situation. So it seems like Billy Bean really, really does not want to get in that wild card spot, really wants to win the division. They've made all of these trades, not only um, just the John Lester two month rental. But also the Jeff Samarja deal, where they traded their best prospect, Addison Russell. Do we think that Billy Bean has PTSD from losing in the playoffs all these years? Is he really going like way too big, like shoving everything in to the season? Like, what can we make a strong anti-Bean case that he's really kind of just going for it too much this year?
2: Well, first, there's always been this assumption that it doesn't work in the playoffs because the sample is too small, but. But maybe what Billy Bean, maybe it only works as the sample gets small enough. Maybe his thing, maybe he's especially good in one-game playoffs. And, and he just needs a one-game playoff pass for the World Series. <laughs> I don't know. I think that probably, my guess is that what happened is that they looked at the Angels and saw what we look at when we see the Angels, which is that the Angels are actually the best team in baseball even though the Angels, uh, the A's have played better this year, the Angels are probably the best team in baseball at this point. And it was going to be a dogfight just to get to the postseason. And the extra win that gets you to the postseason is the most valuable win you can possibly get. I don't know that this is a huge departure for him. It's he's been trading prospects for the last three years. He's traded half of his farm system, half of his half of his ranked prospects over the last two or three years, getting cost-controlled veterans on short-term deals. So.
4: So do you think he's saying basically that the Baseball America organizational rankings are overrated and we just want a winning major league team?
3: Or is he finding a way to take those Baseball America rankings and turn them to his short-term benefit?
2: Uh, I think there's a couple of things. One is that if prospects were overvalued for a time, and he was saying that they were around the time of the Gio Gonzalez trade, he he was commenting about how it used to be that you could trade a pitcher who had five years of service time and get three good prospects. And, and now you have to trade a guy with two-and-a-half years service time because everybody so at the time was holding on to their prospects. It was hard to get those deals. So I think that he just sort of swung around and tried to capitalize on that while he could. Yeah, the A's, when they're competing, don't quite have the same ability to uh, maintain risk in their, in their system. And so uh, when you get a guy like Jed Lowry or a guy like um, you know John Jaso or a guy like Jeff Samarja, who's cost-controlled, Who's a, who's a contributor right now but doesn't make you give five or six years of commitment to him, it's a very valuable thing. I mean, every player's got some value contract-wise. The big star gives you relative certainty in his performance, but you have to pay him forever, so that's the risk. The prospect gives you upside and no financial commitment, but he might turn into Brandon Wood. And then the guy in the middle is sort of like the cool safe pick that everybody likes. You only have to pay him for two years, so there's not a huge long-term downside to him, uh, but you basically know what he's gonna do tomorrow. So there's a definitely a tendency to look at any single A's move and go, Well, that's the new money ball. They're into fly balls, or they're into John Jasos, or they're into catcher framing, or they're into not catcher framing, or whatever. And so I I always have a tendency to just stare at their moves and think this must mean something. This must be like the the three D poster or something like that. But I think it's just simply the case that they acted like a competing team in a race with a really good competing team. Uh, and they really didn't want to get left out of the playoffs.
3: A 3D poster well, when you're stoned, least. Sam.
2: Out good ones. What's
3: that? A 3D poster when you're stoned, Sam.
2: Yes, that's the A's. That's, that's the Bay Area way.
0: Little, little off topic. I heard Peter Gammons being interviewed, and uh, this is not to blame Gammons. He was asked what teams have a legitimate shot to win the World Series. And he kind of went through and picked... I think, the three teams in each division now. Is he nuts? Like, does he not know how baseball works? And it's not just him. It's everyone. This is the question. What teams have a chance to win? And then he says, I don't know if Baltimore has enough pitching, right? Or I don't know if Weaver and C.J. Wilson are going to get back on track for the Angels. I mean, once you get to the postseason, forget shit not working. Like, there's so much randomness. But is this just a game that baseball writers have to play to pretend that some really have a much better chance than others? Or do some really do have a much better chance than others?
2: No, no, none has any much better chance than others. There's there's been no proven way of building a postseason team that's any better than a regular season team. And, I mean, you know, look, this entire conversation that we've been having about the trade deadline, for instance, it seems like a really big deal, right? Like, we're talking about it because, oh, they made these huge moves, these famous Mm -hmm. names changed. David Price to the Tigers. Exactly. So we did we looked at the actual playoff odds changes for every one of these trades as they happen. So Marginal. we ran the playoff odds like a dozen times on Thursday and each trade we we saw how much did each team's chances of making the playoffs go up or down. And the the truth is that even over the course of fifty games, you we're talking about like one percent, two percent chances a lot of times. This is this is like talk, death to talk radio, but not much you can do in baseball moves the needle a whole lot, especially over the course of a third of a season, and particularly over the course of a week, so yeah, I mean, look, it's very, very, very easy to find examples of the not best team winning the World Series, of teams of every construction winning the World Series. The Orioles are plenty good enough to beat any team in baseball over five or seven games. The Phillies are plenty good enough to beat every team in baseball over five or seven games. The Astros could do it, so there's no reason to think that the Orioles are are really any much less likely than the Tigers or the A's,
4: although I would still take the Tigers and the A's. All right, Sam, um, before you get off into too many elaborate fantasy scenarios involving the Astros... Yeah,
0: take it easy there, Sammy.
4: <laughs> come on, buddy.
0: <laughs> Back to earth over here.
4: That 3D poster is, uh, <laughs> you know, making you lose your mind. But everybody should read Baseball Prospectus, where Sam is the editor-in-chief, and listen to the Effectively Wild podcast. Sam, thank you very much for being with us. Sure, thanks. All right, it is now time for After Balls, and Stefan wants to have the honors this week.
3: Kicker. Kicker time. So you have to now tune in to Slate Plus. You have to pay to tune in to Slate Plus. hear us talk about kickers. After Ball, Ben Agajanian was probably believed to be the first full-time kicker-only in the National Football League back in the late 40s and the 50s. Kick for the Giants. Still alive, 94 years old. Agajanian's had his toes severed in an elevator accident when he was working at a bottling plant as a young man, kicked sort of Tom Dempsey-ish with a special boot.
4: Have you ever interviewed the guy?
3: I have. Yeah, I did. I interviewed him uh, for the book but uh, for a few seconds of panic, but did did not make the
4: book. Did he let you look at his foot? It was on
3: the phone, so I couldn't see his foot.
4: (laughs) Did he use a special shoe phone with like a a blunt end? All right, Mike Pesca, what is your Agajanian?
0: I'm just going to throw it out there that there might be some in our audience who would pay not to hear about Kickers. I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs>
4: that option <laughs> is available to It you. is.
0: So Derek Jeter hit a uh, home run over the Green Monster. That's what they call the outfield wall in Fenway Park. It was his first home, yeah, really? first home w- run in Fenway since September 2007 against Kurt Schilling and his sock and his failed internet company. Actually more of a video game company, but the company was just a uh, gleam in Kurt Schilling's eye as the ball left the yard. And that day in September, he was the first Yankee who was over the age of 40 to hit a home run at Fenway since Enos Slaughter in 1959. Now I always assumed he, or I always associated in his slaughter with the Gas House Gang. I totally forgot that he was traded to the Yankees and spent his career being a guy over forty hitting home runs over the Green Monster. And if you look at the odds, if you uh, t- or we were talking to Sam there, if you look at the odds of making the playoffs, the Yankees most likely will not make the playoffs, and that means Derek Jeter's last game most likely will be at Fenway Park. Last week, as a civilian, I went to a Yankees game, and it was just awesome to hear the Derek Jeter chant. I love that commercial. And in that commercial, in that Nike commercial, with respect as the uh, tagline, there's a couple great moments of Yankee-Red Sox uh, interaction, right? John Lester tips his cap to Derek Jeter, and then you have the great scene of the guys in the bar looking at each other like, I don't want to do it, but then they tip their cap to Derek Jeter. And what that got me to thinking about was the usefulness of a great rival, the Red Sox need Derek Jeter almost as much as the Yankees need Derek Jeter. Because Derek Jeter, if you look at the great rivals in history, Richard the Lionhearted and Suleiman, or uh, General Lee and General Grant, or a lot of the other Civil War generals, you know, I, I was thinking... The Duke thinking boys of, and Barthog. That's right. Well, actually, <laughs> actually, I don't know if there was so much respect on both sides. But when you have a rival, I'm thinking, you know, Patton and Rommel, the Desert Fox, guys who sort of had this uh this uh brotherhood of this is what we do for a living we are two or, you know, five or 20 of the people at the pinnacle of our careers. But I think the Civil War analogy is really the best because a lot of those generals went to West Point together or fought in the Mexican-American War together. And just like in baseball, you know, red the Red Sox fans and the Yankee fans are at each other's throat, but the players are a lot more fluid. And, you know, they've been playing together and have a kinship like Civil War generals often did for a long time. And when you read, there's a book out called Civil War, generals, comrades, peers, and rivals. And it's just about Civil War generals describing and Civil War notable Civil War people describing other Civil War people. So it gets a little old, but some of the quotes come through and reminded me of what the Red Sox think about Jeter. And the reason that Jeter is so useful to the Red Sox is that it's very useful to have a totem, a totem of what you think that your rival should define himself as. And the thing is that Derek Jeter, it's such an impossible stature to attain, really. I mean, we talked about how he has five World championships and does things the right way and a lot of bullshit associated with that. But he certainly is a great player who everyone respects. And this way, rhetorically, and we saw this with A-Rod, you could do the thing where players would say, well... I know the Yankees are our rivals, but they should be more like Derek Jeter. A-Rod's not exactly Derek Jeter. So when you have a great rival and none of the others on his team could live up to him, it actually fuels you a little more. And I think that's what's going on with the Red Sox. The Red Sox need Derek Jeter and the Red Sox will be sad to see Derek Jeter go, Not not just because of the things that they will tell themselves, which is, you know, we love the Red Sox, but we also love baseball and we appreciate him. It's because that Derek Jeter is a touchstone to slam all other Yankees who do not achieve jeterdom, which is to say to slam
4: all other Yankees. can't believe you made it through the whole thing without saying true Yankee. He's a true Yankee. He he embodies the pinstripes. Yeah.
3: Well, he does in as much as he stands for something that other fans loathe, which is the
4: sort of corporate efficiency that the Yankees came to represent. This anodyne, boring... You just ruined Mike's afterball. Yeah, mm-hmm. thanks. Yeah. yeah, thanks a lot. Ruin after anything. Thing. You
0: ruined You after-pooped. After-ball, after-poop. There. After-crap.
4: After-poop. After-bowels. Stefan, what is your Agajanian?
3: I have a warning. This is going to be another sad and gruesome afterball. Paul George's injury, gruesome. It wasn't the most... Tragic stanchion-related incident in basketball history. That happened on April 28, 1993, in the waning minutes of a Greek League playoff semifinal between the home team Panionios and city rival Panathinaikos. The video is on YouTube. Trailing 56-50, to 50, Panionios forward Slobodan Boban Jankovic receives a pass in the paint. He takes one dribble, backs off his defender, and lays the ball in. The ref whistles Jankovic for an offensive foul, his fifth and final... Here's the call from the Greek announcers. Translation Jankovic, aggressive foul, his fifth. Jankovic went and hit his head against the basket and fell to the playing surface. The Serb's head is covered with blood. In greater detail, Jankovic gets pissed off at the call, grabs his head in disbelief, then pulls it back like he's going to head a soccer ball, takes one step forward and rams it into the stanchion. He falls limply to the court, the fingers of his right hand splayed awkwardly around his head. A teammate tries to flip him over, blood gushes. A trainer does flip him over. In real time, it's horrifying to watch, and in retrospect, it's even more horrifying, especially the behavior of the player and the trainers who turned him over. His spinal cord was severely and permanently damaged. Jankovic never walked again. He died of a heart attack in 2006 at age 42. Jankovic had spent most of his career with his hometown team, Red Star Belgrade, in what was then Yugoslavia. In 1992, a former coach lured him to Panionios for what was supposed to be one season. P.J. Brown was a teammate. Boban, Brown told the New York Times last year, didn't have super explosiveness, but he knew how to get to his sweet spots. He had a picture-perfect stroke. Boban also was loved by Panionio's fans. He didn't speak any Greek, but after the injury, the family decided to stay in Greece. That was in part because of neighborhood support for the neighborhood club. The local government even paid for Boban's funeral. And that's explained in part by the team's history. Panionios was founded in eighteen ninety in what was then known as Zmirni or Zmyrna Izmir now, in what was then Ottoman Turkey. After the Turkish army routed irredentist Greek forces in 1919, the club was reestablished in the Nazmyrny-Nuzmyrna neighborhood in Athens. But why was the New York Times writing last year about a 20-year-old Greek tragedy? Because Boban had a son, Vlado, who was three when his father was paralyzed. Vlado grew up Greek, and he grew to six, seven and a half 220 He played for Panionios' youth teams. He was called up to the men's team at age 17. Vlado told the Times that he had seen the video of his father's injury only once, when he was 11 years old at a TV station that was interviewing his dad. After a breakout 2013 season, Vlado was wooed by bigger clubs, including the powerhouse Panathinaikos, against whom his father head-butted the stanchion. The Times quoted fans saying that that might be considered a betrayal because the club had raised Vlado, but Vlado, now 24, signed with Panathinaikos anyway for much more money. He had a decent first season, got some minutes in the EuroLeague, and was called up to the Greek national team for the first time. The younger Jankovic told the Times that unlike some fans, he doesn't blame the rest for the call that led to his father's fateful outburst quote i don't blame anyone except my dad he said he said his father wouldn't talk much about what had happened it was something i couldn't get out of him vlado said i brought it up he said stupid decision stupid time what can i do now i agreed
4: there was truth in advertising
3: there i appreciate that yeah seven. the video is really really it, you know the paul george video was horrifying this is beyond horrifying Tune in right now. Tune in, Josh. What's your agitator
4: on? I'm going to talk about uh, fake violence. Thankfully, um, so at the end of February 1999, Colin Prescott and Andy Elson set a record by staying in a hot air balloon for more than 233 hours. TLC also released its album Fan Mail, which would spawn the number one single "No Scrubs." A month later, just trying to—I always like to work in this context, so to get people back into that. Our best journalists do that, Josh. I, we do. Um, I do, we do, they do. Uh, most important of all, though, in terms of th- this afterball, at least, Indiana University and Insight Edition collaborated on a study in February of 1999 that revealed that 50 episodes of the wrestling show WWF Raw viewed in aggregate, featured a total of 1,658 instances in which a character grabbed or pointed to his own crotch. Among the other facts and figures, there are 434 times when people said or displayed a sexually charged slogan. There were 157 obscene gestures, 128 episodes of simulated sex, 47 references to Satanism, which is higher than I would expect, 42 simulated drug use, 21 cases of urination, comma, talking about slash appearing to, 20 cases of appearance of character as prostitute, and one segment that featured people supposedly draining blood from a dead wrestler and drinking it. (laughs) <laughs> getting getting a good reaction from that one for that one in the studio. This was at the height of kind of the fears of the influence of wrestling on children. There was a case right around then. Um, WWF Raw. Kids had watched it in Winnipeg, Canada. Eight students in an elementary school were suspended for pointing to their crotches and screaming "suck it" as their favorite WWF characters did. The school principal said, "They've done this to other students. They've done this to staff." I've had it done to me on one occasion. So what did the McMahons, Linda and Vince, have to say about this? Uh, In a USA Today article about how wrestling was taking us down this precipitous, horrible cultural path, Linda McMahon says, we push the envelope and then we pull back, but we're not killing anyone. We're not maiming anyone. Do we slug each other with steel chairs? Yes. Yes. Do we think it should be copied? I don't advocate oh, anyone yeah. picking up a chair and slugging anyone. I don't advocate anyone picking up an M- M-16 like Arnold Schwarzenegger does in his movies either. Good point, Linda. A cigar aficionado profile of Vince McMahon. He says, anyone who says we're about violence, I flip them the bird and say, hello. Violence is about guns, rape, and burglary. You're not going to see Uzis, knives, and guns on our show. Not yet. Cut to. <laughs> There's always <time. laughs> Right. Flash forward. Smash cut. So – The context of this is that the WWF was in the middle of what are known as the Monday Night Wars. So there was WCW back then. There were these two different promotions. You had the the Monday Night Conflicts. (laughs) We'll call it the Monday. They call it the Monday Night Wars. We'll say the Monday night violence. The Monday Night (laughs) Contratemps. So Vince McMahon's WWF, and then you have the Ted Turner. WCW, and they have, um, you know, they're competing for ratings on these Monday night shows. The WWF decides to go a little blue. The WCW is like, we're going to bring in some more flashy production values. We've got Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair. We're the WCW. So which one uh, ends up winning? W- WCW, their uh, trademarks, their archived video library, sold to Vince McMahon and World Wrestling Federation Entertainment for uh, $3 million in 2001. Probably a little bit more to the story, but I'd like to just think of this as the lesson that we're imparting to our children. Crotch chops, suck it, Satanism, drinking blood. Those are the things that are valued and prized in the American marketplace. And I'm just going to end the after ball right there. We'd love your feedback on what we talked urination, about today. Trauma. Why urination? Is urination the right word? Uh, maturation? excretion,
0: <laughs> Ur- Urinating? Just urination. <laughs> urination. It seems like an ESPN2 branding
4: <laughs> effort. Ah, you're in the middle of urination. All right, sorry. Go ahead. It could also be like a spoon bending special <laughs> hour.
0: <laughs> Israeli psychic Yuri Geller bends cutlery and then urinates on <laughs> it.
4: <laughs> We'd love your feedback on this and other matters. Uh, you can email us at hangupitslate.com Wasn't there an Israeli psychic WWF character? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there was we will got, also got their links. They changed, they changed the name to WWE, I should note, later because of the World Wildlife Fund. to the stories we discussed at Slate.com slash Hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen to iTunes. You can find us at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcast. Goldberg did have a really long undefeated streak, and that helped the WCW popularity. And when you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hangup and listen on Facebook at Facebook.com. Slash hang up and listen. Sting, another popular WCW wrestler. He's not currently our intern. That is Chris Leskowski. Our producer is Mike Volo. One of the more popular Italian-Jewish uh, WWE characters. If this were
3: the gist, he'd have a nickname right now
4: during the credits. The Lexicographer. Yeah. Uh, the there exec- was
3: Lex. What, 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 was the, what was the Lex guy's name? Lex Luthor? Lex, Lex. Luthor. There was, there
0: was a bad Lex guy.
4: Bad Lex guy is ah, our Lex. executive producer, <laughs> otherwise Lex. known as Andy Bowers.
0: Lex Luger.
4: Lex Luger, that's right. Yes,
0: there was a Lex Luger.
4: Right. Remember Zelmo, the Punisher Beatty? And thanks (laughs) for listening.